صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Morning, Rob. How are you? Mate, I'm really well, well now, so how are you? Mate, going stir-crazy, lockdown week number five, one week to go, hopefully. Yeah, I think that should be it. I think we'll be able, be able to go out to at least to our front door and back. Fingers crossed. Now, there's a lot been going on in Palestine, too, over the last couple of weeks. And what have we got on today, Nasser? We are joined by another fantastic Palestinian woman, uh, Dr. Michaela Sahar. Good morning, Michaela. Good morning, Nasser. Good morning. Nice to meet you. Good morning, Rob. Thanks for having me. Now, thanks so very much for uh, giving us some time, Michaela. Now, Michaela, one thing we always ask our new guests is their Palestine story. Can you take us through yours, how you ended up here? Sure. So my family were a Jerusalemite family. He lived in the Greek colony in a classic Palestinian house that my grandfather built in the 1920s and 30s uh, with a beautiful fountain in the centre, as you often see. Um, in classic photographs of houses of the period. Um, And I suppose in a really practical or specific sense, the reason why my family initially left Palestine was because of the very imminent birth of my father. And my father is the age of the occupation. He was born in 1948. Um, So they left and my grandmother gave birth to my father at the Italian hospital in Amman, which I visited. And on the night he was born, my grandmother was really unwell and um, they offered to take the baby to the nursery. And she uh, was quite delirious and wasn't sure what had happened. And when she awoke in the morning, they told her the nursery had burnt down. And she became hysterical and they reassured her that she had fought Um, so hard to keep him with her that he was okay and by her side. So my family lived in Amman for a couple of years and and they returned briefly to Jerusalem in an attempt to recover their house and property, which was not to be. Um, And they they came out on a boat, I think it was called the Roma in the early 1950s and settled in Williamstown where my father became an avid supporter of the Western Bulldogs, which for many years looked to be his second chief lost cause in life um, until the happy winning of the premiership in 2016. You have to wait a while. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, he's seen a a premiership, so he's lived the Australian dream. That's right. (laughs) If we go back a second, Carla. Sure. The house occupied is it still there to get bulldozed or zionist israelis in there no the house is still there it's a beautiful um it's a beautiful home um which has five apartments in it and in a rather strange narrative uh, which i still am, am very ambivalent about actually um in 2018 one of my aunts went returned she went back to visit 
her home and she's in her late 70s, I think, and felt like it might be her last opportunity to visit. And she went to visit the house and quite by chance, she knocked on the door of a, of a guy who's a renter there. And he said, I have been waiting for the owners to knock on the door the whole time I've lived here. And he said, I want to extend to you and all your family a virtual key. So when you come to Jerusalem, you stay with me. So I was in, um, I was in Greece at the time. And I was sitting at the airport waiting to go to Sicily, I think, and I was just absolutely blown away by that. I've had a little bit of contact with, with the guy who made that offer. Um, I think he splits his time between New York and Australia, uh, sorry, in New York and Israel. Um, and I haven't learned a great deal about him, um, but I've had a little bit of a couple of emails with him over the years, and I do hope very much that I will take him up on that on the other side. What an amazing story! Mm. Yeah, it really is amazing. So when when they left, were they thrown out of the house? Is that what happened? And they went back, and they weren't allowed back in. Well, as you may know, Rob, um, Jerusalem really came to resemble a concentration camp in 1948, mm-hmm. and people who were inside um, sort of stuck it out in their homes, and people who'd left were unable to return um so actually my grandparents were in amman for two two years or so and when they went back they were unable to go back to the to the west uh, or what's now called west jerusalem which is where their um home was you know rather um ritzy suburb <laughs> these days yeah and so they actually lived i think with a colleague of my grandfather's my grandfather was a was a um travel guide but he also had a carpentry business on Mamilla, which was a f- pretty famous uh, Palestinian precinct in Jerusalem which has been almost entirely uh, demolished and rebuilt as a sort of um, upmarket mall these days but his his furniture business was well known and I have heard although no one's ever been able to find it that he repaired a door at the church of the Holy Sepulchre and um, the stamp of his carpentry company is apparently in the door, although I don't know if it's still there today. Wow. wow. So did your grandparents ever get to go back? Look, they never did, uh, Nasa. They, they went on one trip, overseas trip to my knowledge, uh, once they arrived in Australia. Um, and they went to visit some family who had been displaced to Syria. So it, my grandmother had a lot of sisters who were displaced um, around the Middle East. And one family remained in Damascus. Um, until I think the 1970s when most of them emigrated to the US, although we do have family that remain in, in both Jerusalem and other parts of uh, occupied Palestine today. Now, Mick, you've just had an article published in Overland called Welcome to the Nakba, Notes from the Epicentre of an Apocalypse. You wrote the article some time ago, but it, just, it actually just came out. And I want to speak to that in a second, but also the fact that Yourself, Sarah Saleh, and Randa Abdul Fattah, who's been a guest previously with us. The three of you put together a, a, a joint statement for artists and academics against the impending annexation in July. Mm. Close to a thousand artists and PhDs and academics signed on to that letter. You couldn't get it published anywhere. In the end, you had to crowdfund and pay for it to go into the newspaper as an advert. Mm. Firstly, is there a reason that it took so long to get your piece 
published this second piece, Welcome to Nakba, and speak to the silencing of Palestinian voices? Sure. Um, well, I should say in the case of Overland, there was nothing untoward there. Um, the piece was actually commissioned by by Jonathan Dunk and Evelyn Aurelian, Aralewin, sorry, who are the, the editors of, um, new editors, I should say, of Overland. And they commissioned so the piece. That's great. Yeah, it is. Um, they, it was, and it was a very loose brief. Uh, they knew that I worked on Palestine, which is why they'd approached me. But from memory, um, the brief was really loose and it was just to write something about what radicalism meant to me. Um, and so I wrote it in February and I think at the time it was going to be published quite quickly, but really I think because of the exigencies of COVID, the issue was delayed. Um, and it's a strange piece for that reason. I mean, I wrote it before I, before we had any idea that our year would be the year that it's been. Mm. And, um, I wrote it, I guess, right in the, the wake of, of the bushfires, um, which really did press their way into the cities with all the smoke haze and, and red dust. And, and the bushfires were also quite um, personal to me. I had some friends who really suffered in that experience from, from regional areas. And I suppose that piece, you know, linking... Uh, thing, I think at the time the big news was the, the deal of the century, which is yeah. really a blip on the horizon at this point. <laughs> Uh, or receding on the horizon, but um, the yeah, the, so the response was really sort of to climate crisis and the the really laughable deal, and thinking also, of course, about um, solidarity with our Aboriginal brothers and sisters, which I'm really happy to see the Palestinian community increasingly taking up a position of of solidarity, um, which I think has been offered for a long time from from Aboriginal people and I think perhaps because of the nature of diaspora and dispossession and the way in which communities are decimated when they when they are displaced in the way that Palestinians have been and I I should say that Aboriginal communities have been displaced as well um, but I think it's only really perhaps um, in the last decade that we've been doing a better job at, at, at solidarity and allyship with with um, Aboriginal people who I think have been offering us their solidarity and allyship for a really long time. So we, we have failed as a Palestinian community to embrace that fellowship. Um, you were part of our conference last year, the Black Pal Conference. Um, on the weekend, we had BDS Australia put together a fantastic panel. Professor Tony Birch, Amy McGuire, Dr. Randa Abdel-Fatah and Amon Barghouti. I mean, we've come a long way from 10 years ago and I, I kind of want to make a little bit of an apology for the... Palestinians desperate to just get away from where they've exited, whether it be Iraq or Syria or Lebanon, the challenge they've had. But certainly in that next generation, not the first generation of Palestinian refugee, that next generation, increasingly the allyship and the intersectionality of our struggles is increasing. You were a big part of that conference. You presented, you were there for all three days. What was your biggest takeaway? What do you? What, what was the highlights for you, you think? Oh, gosh. I mean, I think... Um... Tony Birch said on Saturday night that every session he went to, he just felt like there was so much generosity and energy in the room. And I think for me as well, that was so powerful. I think when I first started working on Palestine, I didn't actually know any other Palestinians who were working on Palestine. And 
during my PhD, I made a few a few friends who were um, also pursuing some some sort of activism or academic work on Palestine. But I think the community, in a in a visible and practical sense, has really got stronger. I I kind of attribute it in some ways to the work that APAN's done in connecting people and and creating a hub and events because I think it's given it's given us an opportunity to meet one another and keep those conversations and connections going. So to be in a room with Palestinian scholars, including a, an amazing friend of mine who I met at a conference the year that I finished my PhD, who was also able to, to participate, um, and meeting Aboriginal people from across the country and, and hearing about practical activism and personal stories. And, and actually, maybe that's the thing. I think... I think academia can be a place where where the questions are foreclosed and I felt like we were in a space where we were sharing stories and, and, and generating stories and ideas and thoughts and ways of looking into things and going about things and I thought, you know, I wish it was like this all the time. Is the, is the Aboriginal groups, are they becoming uh, more inclined to be a part of the Palestinian thing or has it always been there? Is it growing? Look, I think it's always been there. Um, I, Gary Foley has a really long history of solidarity in the Palestinian community um, since since before I was born. And it's a well-known story and not mine to tell, but um, he's, he's one of many. But look, there's some um, incredible solidarity work here among Aboriginal people, but I think also yeah, amongst Indigenous groups around the world. And I think they've heard us and received our stories and um, written such powerful poetry and and powerful works of solidarity um, yeah. about our struggle. And, you know, I, th I think in some ways we're the most newly displaced people in that struggle um, and maybe they've had longer to think about it and develop their networks. And I think I feel like we're joining it now and it's our turn to reciprocate that. I was just going to say, we, we keep hearing or we're hearing a lot more about a decolonised Palestine. What do you see uh, that being, decolonised Palestine? What, what would it be like? So what do you mean they, they decolonised? Sorry. We, we keep, no, that's okay. We keep hearing that um, what needs to happen is that Palestine needs to be decolonised. Yeah, as a solution. Yeah. Oh, look, I teach decolonisation to my to my students and it's okay. <laughs> I mean it's a tough one isn't you it because us. because decolonization has to take different forms in different contexts so you know and arguably decolonization projects that we think of as successful because people got their nation states are not that successful because of the operation of neoliberal economies so what does decolonisation really mean? I think in I think in the case of settler colonial societies, of which Australia is one, and and Palestine or Israel is another, what we're probably aiming for is a decolonisation of the mind, and it's not an easy thing to do. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think it's really important to say, and I think you know, listening to someone like Tony Birch last week talking about. Um, the idea of retaining your your own sovereignty and you don't wait for a government to give you sovereignty because you never gave it up. I mean, I think yeah. building up your own people, whether they're Aboriginal people here or Palestinian people there, 
um, to recognise that you're not waiting for illegal laws to give you a right that that if you don't have it, it's nevertheless not not gone. It's an inalienable right. Um, so I think that's important. But I think the other really important thing, and I think you know the the humility I think of Aboriginal people on the subject of, for example, refugees here, about an Indigenous welcome to refugees. Um, but also, also a kind of decolonisation or a dismantling of the idea that the logical alternative of colonisation is the removal of all the settlers, because I don't think that's what Aboriginal people are asking for, and it's certainly not what Palestinians are asking for, although it's often um, an idea that's kind of put in our mouth, and, and I don't know any Palestinians who would say that. Yeah, that's, that's part of the reason I ask, because there are there's some you know, some very extreme people saying that, you know, decolonising is basically getting rid of the settlers. And I don't think that that's what, you know, anybody really thinks should happen. Well, it's either hysterical hyperbole or if they're meant to be on our side, they're just not and they're not welcome, are they? No, mm. correct. They're just not welcome. Because one of, one of the challenges, and you talk about recent examples of, you know, decolonisation, if you will, is the South African model. And whilst Nelson Mandela walked free from jail and was president, et cetera, et cetera, and they won a World Cup, the reality is that neoliberal policies exist. All the money's still with the white guys. Well, that's right. And the flight of money. I mean, you can't meet a South African business person in, in Australia today who left, you know, in the past decade. and Poor. <laughs> they're not poor. And then you say to them, you know, that apartheid, you know, that would have been real good, wouldn't it? <laughs> what, what do you mean? I said, oh, you know, somebody to wash your car, somebody to cook and clean, bathe your kids. Oh, no, no, I was anti-apartheid. You know, how, how come you didn't leave in the 80s then or 70s? How come you only left after they got the vote? And it's at that point you see them all clam up. And one of the things that, you know, goes through my head and who knows when that juncture in history is. I mean, when Peter Beinhart, you know, liberal Zionist comes out and he's a white saviour and he tells us apparently we can all live together, news to us, the dam's got uh, holes in it. You might do a deal with the United Arab Emirates, you've got backdoor dealings with Saudi Arabia and Qatar, etc. but justice has to prevail at some point. And those people that, I, I can't wait to meet Israelis in the future that go, no, I was always against the occupation, but they kept voting for Benjamin Netanyahu. Well, I guess... Um it's very hard to make people to give up privilege because I think people people genuinely believe that they're deserving of the privilege they have. And I think it makes people feel bad to try and explain to them why that's not the case. And you don't get very far. I mean, if you just want to look at white Australia, I mean, people get defensive. When you discuss, for example, Australia Day or changing the date or what the date might mean to, to Aboriginal people, um, I think there's a wonderful the film by John Pilger called Utopia, I think, and he interviews people on Circular Quay and they've got Australian flags painted on their, their cheeks and he puts to them that, you know, it might be a day of mourning and, and people just find that an impossible um, thing to reconcile with their own sense of reality. So I think... They get very aggressive too, don't they, about it? Really aggressive. And I think, yeah. I mean... A lot of Palestinian commentators have said, you know, I think I think there've been some big changes in the in the last two decades, so in the 21st century, and I think they've been somewhat catalyzed paradoxically and really tragically by um, 
the, the massive assaults on Gaza in particular, but also before that, the Second Intifada in the West Bank. And a lot of people wrote around that time, sort of um, scholars like Rashid Khalidi, um, you know, it takes many generations to dismantle the mythologies that people kind of cherish in their families and that they're taught and that they're invested in and that they kind of tend as part of their family mythology and personal identity. And so in some ways, I think it's a generational game. So, so when, I, when I think about how, how things have changed for me as a Palestinian, I mean, I think that I think the generation who's, you know, a generation younger than me, I get the impression that they haven't had to apologise for being Palestinian. And I think I grew up apologising for it. Mm. Or if I wasn't apologising for it, I was aware that in owning my Palestinianness, I was taking on some sort of a fight or it was going to be really explosive or I was going to have to defend my identity in ways that um, no one else is asked to defend, um, which, which is, is quite shocking. And yet as a Palestinian, it's something you grow up with from a really young age. And I think that has changed for the next generation quite a bit. I mean, you'd have more of a sense of this now because you've got young kids, but I just, I think there's a lot, a lot more community recognition and awareness and a, a lot fewer people who say to you casually in a reception, oh, I read a nice story about kids in, in Gaza the other day flying kites and it really humanised them for me. And you think, gosh, uh, it's pretty tragic that you think it's yeah. a good thing to tell me that people have been humanised for you because they've got kids who fly kites. Yeah. That's very sad. Very I, sad. I can certainly say make a generation older than you. And it was, um, and I grew up in very, very white Burma Morris. You know, and we grew up in the back of a milk bar and I had a funny name and funny skin colour and I was the milk bar boy with all these rich Bayside uh, prep boys. Uh, it was a challenge. Certainly it was a challenge being Palestinian then. I don't know. Mm. And, and certainly you went through it too. Mm. I, I think for our kids though, increasingly, uh, and, and mine in particular, you know, the parents groups that I've met other parents, you know, when I, where are you from? And, you know, I just love making white people uncomfortable and I go, <laughs> you know, Melbourne. And I mean, where are you from? Oh, Campbell? Earth? What do, what do you mean? Oh, what's, your, what's your heritage? Oh, my father was born in Palestine, you know, and just make, you're making them feel uncomfortable. But increasingly in white, polite space, there's more sympathy for us than there's ever been. And it's increasingly coming from a place of justice, not anti-Semitism. So early on, I used to get support from people and that the support came with the effing Jews. You know? mm. And I'd have to explain to them, look, it's not Jews. My dad's first girlfriend was a Jew. It's mm. not Judaism. It's not Jewish people. Mm. Zionism, it's settler colonialism. You know, it's ethnic cleansing. That's not somebody's religion. Um, but today in polite society, they're increasingly becoming more vocal and more comfortable. What do you put that down to? No, so is, it, is it just momentum or is it, you know, technology? What, what is it? So th there was a lot of mythology around the establishment of the State of Israel. Hollywood went all out, whether it was Exodus and Paul Newman and the kibbutz story and the socialist ideal of, you know, making the, the desert bloom and the land without people for a people without a land. This went th right through the 50s, 60s and 70s through most of, well, a big chunk of Australia that was left-leaning. And so it really... Mm really got into them. Now, many of those people now in their late 60s, 70s and 80s have gone, 
we were totally hoodwinked. But I think you're dealing with two things there, aren't you? Because you're dealing on the one hand with the narrative of sort of the halcyon days of, of Israel as a, as a um, yeah, socialist dream, let's say. Um, it sort of connects. And a miracle post-Holocaust. That's right. But I think, you know, so many people, particularly in some of the areas I've lived in, you know, my neighbours will introduce themselves to me and ask me what I work on and they find it quite problematic. I mean, I used to teach more specifically in terrorism, but I always say that I work on Palestine studies. And people have often apologised and said, you know, I feel my history is with the Jews because I'm European, you know, from wherever they're from in Europe, but maybe quite recently. And I think that's part of it too. I think, you know, in a generational sense, Mm. that left-leaning people have nevertheless, particularly as um, European settlers here, let's say, I think that they do hold um, the guilt of the Holocaust. But I think quite interestingly, I do remember going to a a Breaking the Silence talk in Melbourne, um, and I was just back from Palestine, and my mother and I were walking into the the bookshop where it was being held and two women ahead of us said, oh, you know, it's wonderful that someone from the IDF is giving this talk because, you know, people just don't understand how dreadful it is over there and, you know, he's really going to explain it to everyone. And the audience, perhaps excepting myself and my mother, were completely gobsmacked by what this man had to say and he he, um, had a lot of very hostile questions from the audience and he finally said, I don't get this kind of reaction anywhere except for places like Australia and America. And in Berlin, you know, if I'm in Germany or if I'm in Israel, no one's surprised about what goes on. Um, But there are certain places that vehemently defend, you know, the actions of the state. To go back, Nasser, to this idea of silencing those, so, um, you know, quite separate to Overland, who's been hugely supportive, and they were, in fact, the people who um, published published the statement, published the the open letter. Um, And and very quickly, I must say, um, and they were very willing to do that. And I have to say, I mean, our allies do it at great great expense to themselves because there's so much criticism for this kind of stuff. And of course, the threat up until this time is always um, about withdrawals of funding and and, stuff like this. Um, But I think, it is very difficult as a Palestinian to get your work out there and to get stuff published. But but one thing that I have noticed in recent years, and actually on a slightly different publication story, many, many years ago when I was doing my honours thesis in creative writing, I wrote a sequence of poems called The Assassins. And they were in part <clears throat> written in, the, well, they were written really at the end of the era of the spectre of the suicide bomber. and. They were they were written actually in the year that Hani Abu Assad's film Paradise Now came out, which to this day I think has one of the most extraordinary um, monologues in it towards the end of the film, which which explains how someone could have the kind of politic um, that would require them to to take up this unthinkable calling. But more powerfully, I heard an actor. He was a Palestinian guy who was portraying that person and he said, well, I can't understand it and so I try and feel it. And for me, this was very powerful and I I wrote this sequence of poems and I was thinking about how diaspora functions across space and time between 1948 and now and also in different geographic locations around the world. And I sent it to um, the poet, Dorothy Porter, who was a, a famous Melbourne 
poet and um and she thought the poems were very good and she suggested I send them to different places to get published and this was around 2005 and no one would publish them and I got a range of different responses some people said they couldn't be published separately because they were a sequence some people wrote sorry on the manuscript handwritten sorry and returned it to me because it was before you before you would email stuff to people and so 15 years later I sent it off to arena and um I know some of the people there and they were, they've published some of my poetry before, which has also been about Palestine. And, and they were happy to publish it. And I hadn't been trying in the interceding years, but I, to me that signalled the shift that even the left 15 years ago couldn't publish that. And 15 years later they've been able to, and I, I've not heard of any um, difficulty they've had with that publication either. What a fantastic way to end our show on an upbeat positive note. Michaela, thanks so very much for joining us and hopefully we can speak to you again soon. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Nasa. That was Dr. Michaela Sahar, who is an Australian-Palestinian poet and researcher. She completed a PhD at University of Melbourne in 2016, focusing on the influence of Israeli national narrative on Western media coverage in the situation in Israel-Palestine. She currently lectures in the history of ideas at Trinity College at the University of Melbourne. I'm sure you'll agree, a wonderful Palestinian woman. Thanks for listening again. Be sure to share the podcast. Tell your friends to tune in next week. I'm going to put a link to both of Michaela's works that she referenced in the podcast, so be sure to look at those. And if you missed the BDS conference, go to BDS Australia's Facebook page, BDS Australia's Facebook page. Be sure to download that. It was something to be seen. Thanks for listening and free Palestine.